I just can't figure out if it's because you're advanced or because I'm stunted. You take the red pill. You stay in wonder. I am McLovin. You do not talk about Fight Club. Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of the Glass A Film Club podcast. Yes, we're here. We've got a film. We've watched it and we're ready to have a big old discussion about it. And when I say we, of course, I'm not on my own. It's my good pal, film lover, chatter of all things cultural and anything that is interesting in the world. It's Callum. How are you doing today, Callum? Are you ready for another big review? Always. Morning. Uh, no, it is yeah, the morning, isn't it? It's the morning, yeah. Um, no, I'm good. Yeah, been uh, enjoy, enjoying the London summer, I suppose. Been watching lots of films as well. Um, I'm trying to sort of. Uh, I said last time that um, I've been watching quite a lot of classic westerns. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, but I, I watched The French Connection, the 1971 version, for the first time the other week. Um, and how was that? Awesome. Really, really good. Um, I've basically got a list of movies that um, you've everyone's, the like most people have heard of, but um, and movies that I should have watched, but I, I've never seen. So I'm slowly t- uh, ticking away on that list. Have you had a rewatch of Cheaper by the Dozen yet? <laughs> it is going to be on the list. That's um, That's a Sunday afternoon film, I think. It's, it's still not left me that that your call of that as the ultimate summer film for you. Did I say it was the ultimate summer I film? I think there was something along the lines of that. I mean, we do have it yeah. on the recording of the intro to Asteroid City, so it's there to check. But <laughs> you def- I think the line of inquiry was something very close to ultimate summer film. I think I was having a, a an early an early two thousands nostalgia trip. Cheaper, it was amazing. Uh, but yeah, how are you anyway? Yeah, I'm. I'm very well. This I've been enjoying our run of watching classic films, as mm. I really poured my heart out on the episode with Twelve Angry Men and a little tease we were watching today. Going down this classic route has been a nice insight. And again, this is what's been been great about continuing diving into different films on the podcast is that we discover new areas and styles of cinema. So that's been been great. And um, yeah, doing well. Went to my first festival of the summer has encouraged me to go and watch some more live music or a bit more outdoor culture, which was fantastic. It's great just having the sun on your back for the weekend whilst there's lovely music being pumped into your ears. I don't think you can get more summery and enjoyable and cultural than that. Yeah, I'm gonna try and get. I'm gonna try and see some live music when I, because uh, I've I've booked um, trips to Brussels and Paris and Amsterdam. Doing <laughs> the, 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 the 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 face doesn't really work on on audio, does we it? We need to get like, a photo of that face shared out so people yeah. can uh, picture what you're doing when the face is pulled. Basically, I for the basically I, I wave my face in the air in a pretentious manner whenever I say something that sounds marginally pretentious. So whenever I say sonic literacy, which is a lot on this podcast, <laughs> the, fa- the, the 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 face is brought out. Basically, imagine sort of like Peter Hitchens trying to speak. Um, that's, and that's got the, it. you've got the face. Then there. that's the face. Yeah. Um, <laughs> politically, couldn't be any further away from Peter Hitchens, but the face—that's that is what the face I basically pull. Do you, like think, a, do you think there'll be some opportunity on your travels to see some nice oldie worldy cinemas? 
I hope so. Yeah, I mean, I was trying to seek them out. There's definitely going to be some in Paris. Surely, surely. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, I've already got planned planned out some breweries, and there's a brewery tour that I'm going to do in Belgium, which is going to be awesome. Um, I want to make the trip because I'm going on my own to all these places. I want to make sure that um, I don't just spend them in bars. It's, it's tough to get the balance, isn't it? Yeah, it's tempting, isn't it? Because, you know, obviously you've got the Belgian beer, which is just fantastic. And then in Paris, you've got the wine. Um, and then in Amsterdam, you've just got everything else in between. Mm-hmm. Um, it, yeah, so I, I, I need to... I've already got some cultural stuff planned, particularly for Paris. I'm going to see all the... I'm going to go and see the Delacroix collection, um, which is going to be good. Um, there's a couple of... There's a few David paintings in the Louvre. I'm going to go to the Museum of Contemporary Photography. There you go. That's enough culture there in one sentence. Tick, 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 yeah, tick, Yeah, exactly. Tick. Exactly. And then beer is also, beer is culture in Europe, I think. In, in in England, it's just how much can you drink? Whereas in Europe, it's just it's a cultural thing. I think people more interested in the, the taste, whereas in, in this country, it tends to be a competition of how much you can drink in a short space of time. Well, I look forward to hearing about your travels and adventures once you get back, and I'm sure the listeners will be intrigued, as always, to hear about what you've been up to. But until always. then, Callum, we've got another film to review, and would you be so kind, as always, to share the title of the film and a lovely little overview of what it was about, please? Yeah, absolutely. So we, we did Strangers on the Train, a classic Alfred Hitchcock um, uh uh, picture um, written by Raymond Chandler which I I had no idea that it was written by him and it makes, when I was watching it because it tells you in the subtitles that it's written by Raymond Chandler famous 1930s crime novelist and when I was watching the film I thought, I was like this is very much well it's classic Hitchcock but at the same time I felt like I was watching a Raymond Chandler crime novel um, unfold really on on screen which was quite nice um but it follows the story of two strangers who meet on a train and one is basically a um a psychopath who suggests that um he should murder um this famous tennis player's wife who he's trying to divorce and then that way the police will never suspect that um he murdered her because he wasn't in the right he wasn't in the place at the time that the murder was happening. That makes no sense. Basically, they agree to murder one. They agree to murder one another's um, nemesis, basically. Um, and basically, the story is about how that unfolds and how uh, one's wife is killed. Basically, um, again, the Library of Congress describe it as a culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. And I've made this joke before. It's always one or the other. It's never all. It's never all uh, four, is it? It's always one of those um but yeah very very interesting film largely about sort of um it's quite bizarre in some respects because the actual moments of the film it's like that's quite bizarre but it could happen it's still believable it's like basically this amateur tennis player wants to divorce his wife but um he doesn't allow him to she doesn't she doesn't want a divorce and she kind of sort of like blackmails him and manipulates him and says that if you try and divorce me and i will expose your affair with this daughter of a u.s senator and then he's basically moaning about it to this stranger on a train and this stranger takes it literally and says that okay i'll go and kill her for you and then basically he has to try and um he tries to prove his innocence because obviously he's the main suspect but um this uh 
psychopath just kind of like sort of like lurks and hovers wherever um the tennis player guy haynes goes and it's um it's a classic hitchcock movie and it's a really really cool crime crime noir that's thank you very much callum there you go a lovely overview as always but yeah i fully get that and i think it well falls into that crime noir area but it's well I think plot driven as my kind of instinct off the back of it is a lot of time obviously what we're looking for in films is using them as a platform to explore some wider themes whereas this just seemed like an absolute prime example of a great um, version of filmmaking and pushing the filmmaking limits of the time because it really pushed forward playing with the audience's emotions because there were times at it where it felt kind of bizarrely, mildly horror, but then there's the drama and tension, and I think that you've got to say that Hitchcock is absolutely a master of building tension, and there were so many elements at play, especially that closing scene when they're on the carousel and the it's going ridiculously fast, and there's a lot of different elements of drama all kind of coalescing at once, where this then kind of struck me straight away as it lent more into the... The pillar of good films, as I always say, of the watching experience rather than giving you something to think about afterwards. But it well and truly did that. I think the plot did twist and turn in uh, unpredictable ways and also the tension of it was built up, but in a, in a mildly bizarre way as well. There's that kind of slightly gothic feel to it, which we've noticed does appear in these golden age cinema black and white films, which added to that slight weirdness. And I think that was more the kind of horror element that I'm referring to was more of a gothic one rather than an intense horror that we would usually picture. But that all contributed to the building of the tension all the way through the film and also some filmmaking techniques, which I imagine at the time would have been pretty groundbreaking to make that happen. But I can... I was feeling when watching it, okay, I get the tension of what's going on here, especially through that score, which builds and builds and builds. There's a tension really rising there. But I imagine at the time, in the early 50s, that's that would be something for an audience there that was quite drastically dramatic and, and high tension building. So even though I didn't feel necessarily this gave me a big springboard for bigger themes of discussion, it was a very what well, great example of classic filmmaking and especially playing with the audience and throwing them in different directions and manipulating their emotions. What about you? I enjoyed it. I thought it was great. Um, I mean, I I just love the thing I've the thing I like about Hitchcock's movies is that um the way he plays with light and shadow. Yes. Um, yeah. you know, there's 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 moments in that film because it it starts off with a quite a, like an up a quite an upbeat score. Almost kind of comedic in a way, yeah. like yeah. that 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 first score, the opening sort of five ten minutes of the film. I I felt like I was watching a kind of like a carry on movie with just because of the score was so sort of like sort of like uh, comedic and upbeat and almost kind of like adolescent in a way, um, which I guess kind of you know if you juxtapose that with that with the, you know these two strangers meeting on a train it is quite a sort of like a um an innocent thing i suppose at first or what seems to be quite innocent you know you just strike up a conversation with a a stranger on a train you're going to you know two different places you have share a cigarette you share a, a meal together you have a conversation that sort of act is quite a 
um, an innocent thing, which I guess explains the score. But then as the film gets on, the score gets increasingly darker and the use of shadow really sort of comes into play. But I read that basically the use of the shadow like creates a sort of Hitchcockian web in the sense that like basically um, the way the camera shoots the subject is that it's always he's always surrounded by objects or um, always surrounded by things or towering things that create big shadows okay. and it create and it creates a sense of like you know the set and the world of the film is sort of caving in around the character it's like a sort of like an aesthetic way to build tension and to to say like to sort of add add more sort of horror and more trauma to the character without necessarily using speech Mm-hmm. Um, it uses the camera to do that, um, and a lot of films from this time do it. I think it helps the fact that it's film is it's black and white because the black and white palette really helps that 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 feeling. But Citizen Kane does it as well, um, and a lot of other movies from the even the It's a Wonderful Life movies from the the forties and the thirties and the fifties all used that aspect of shadow to create um, um, to create a, a, an aesthetic. Yeah, and it's um, the play between light and dark, isn't it? Quite literally, and when yeah. darkness envelops the character or the, the setting, then you feel the tension of that moment. So this is very much a dip into the light and dark because when the film begins, as you say, it feels a bit more jovial. There's quite a beautiful, iconic image of the what I presume is the first class area of this train, and they've got the the buffet car, and it feels like a very, hist- I mean, obviously not at the time it was, but like this quintessential transport American journey, and there's which would fit into a lot of films at the time in a more jovial setting. But then, as the the darkness of the plot passes through, the scenes become darker, and the first time we see the darkness really um, hit is obviously when the murder takes place, and they go through the tunnel and the shadow of that area but then the darkness of the meeting um outside the flats where the yeah. police officer comes knocking and that is obviously quite literally a lot of shadow in play there but the shadow mirrors where the plot's going and as the um as the film goes on those moments of a bit more relief or uplifting moments where there's maybe some optimism in the air. I'm thinking the tennis match, which we'll get onto a bit more in a minute. My thoughts and feelings on that. Uh, But obviously that's light, it's during the day, because there's a plan in place for a potential saviour of the main character there. And obviously then the darkness flips back to when um, they're going over to the fairground. But what is one of the key objects in it? A lighter, the symbolic element of the light being uh, very key in the plot and in the fate of this man's life. And I think it is very clever visually how that's done. And that's what adds to that tension, but also allows you to ride the script in the way that uh, the filmmakers want you to. But also from a uh, metaphorical perspective of what it's putting forward. Yeah, um, definitely. I mean, and uh, you know, there's the bit when um, they're walking around Capitol Hill and they jump into the taxi and um, his, the, his, his nemesis almost is standing on the steps of... Yeah, um, some really foreboding yeah, shots in it, aren't there? Yeah, and it creates a sort of like a... 
it's like a horror. It's like a sort yes. of like a, a. It's like a. It's it's, it's quite a ho- horrific thing. Not in the sort of like I was going to say in the conventional sense of the word, but Hitchcock is sort of known for his sort of like use of sort of horror generally. Yeah. But there's like a. It's not. It's not. It's not like sort of like. It's not horror from like the seventies, you know what I mean? Where it's like you know slasher and sort of mm-hmm. like you know people jumping out and all that sort of stuff. It's kind of like a psych- psychological, isn't it? It's psychological mm-hmm. horror. And it's like the thing that's quite powerful about this story is that it's believable. Like it could happen. Like because the, the the it's rooted in reality when they say, "Oh, how many times have you said, oh, I'm going to kill him because he's so annoying?" Sort of like sort of colloquially. Oh, I just want to strangle him. Or I want to kill him. And it takes that to the next state, the next level, and it's mm-hmm. like um, creates. Well, I mean, there's the scene at the party when the guy literally is strangling that woman, which is a really bizarre scene. Yeah, exactly. So there's there's a there's a sort of juxtaposition between bizarre and and yet believable, but it's also surreal. I think there's an element of surrealism play, play here in in Hitchcock's movies that basically it's like scenes that you never th- you wouldn't necessarily think work together do. It's almost like the sort of like the there's a, it's almost like a surreal horror to it in some respects. But one thing I do like and did quite like is the um, how everything in the movie is a juxtaposition between something else, everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the most obvious example of that is when they're playing tennis, um, which you said we'll get onto that in a second. But like, what I quite liked about the tennis match was that it was juxtaposed with the guy trying to get the lighter out of the storm drain. Yeah. So it's like um, every time his hand uh, got closer to the lighter, um, uh, I can't remember, Guy Haynes, sorry, uh, lost a a set in the Mm -hmm. tennis match. Mm -hmm. And then every time um, his hand got further away from the lighter, when he dropped it, Guy Haynes won a set in the tennis match. So it was just quite, it was like a sort of like a, a really, really, I just thought it was a really, really interesting juxtaposition to show the 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 rivalry between the two characters, two completely different activities that they're trying to do. Like he's trying to get a lighter out of a storm drain, and Guy Haynes is playing. He's trying to win a game of tennis. They're two completely opposite things, but the when they're juxtaposed together, it's like they're in competition with one another. Yes, there's get, a back and forth between exactly, them, like exactly. within the tennis match. Exactly, there's a back and forth between them in the tennis match, but then there's also a back and forth between him trying to finish the tennis match quickly so he can catch him plant, trying to plant the lighter at the crime scene. Um, I just thought it was a really, really intelligent piece of filmmaking. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And, and you just mentioned it then about my issues with the tennis match. And I think this is my main critique of the film as a whole is that as much as I liked the bizarreness and I love the filmmaking and craft of it, there were I think a lot of scenes were, for what is quite a tight film, at just over an hour and a half, there was some elongated scenes in there which I just felt okay why is this being focused on Mm. so much the tennis scene being the prime example and what I think about that is yes I get it was part of the building of the tension and it was juxtaposing what was going on with the lighter but it just felt like why is there so much tennis why are we watching this much tennis (laughs) especially in the early throws of the match it's like oh point 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 game and then all the angles of just different shots and the rallies being shown for so long it just felt like why is there such a focus on this i get that there's attention that needs to be built and the longer we focus on something relatively innocuous 
it builds attention because you feel like you're being pushed to a cliff even further and the higher that cliff is the bigger the drop is but it felt like there's only so far we need to go up here right I, I get it we're watching him play tennis and get where this is going and it's like now we're just watching a tennis match this is just us watching tennis after a bit and I just felt that with some of the scenes where it was just a bit too much of nothing where I feel that it could have been tighter with other things put in there but that was just my personal preference on that. But I want to go back to um, char- the characters. And I think that the character of Bruno was very powerful. Yeah. I think that his strangeness and bizarreness added to the creepy element and made that noir and horror bit even more powerful. But it made those, like you said, those scenes, those foreboding scenes when he was just stood there in the distance... Um, both of when he was completing the murder, but also when he was then pursuing Guy to try and get hold of him again. It felt a bit Frankenstein-y. In, yeah, and this comes point, back yeah. again to what I was saying, how I think noir is, not noir, sorry, gothic tropes are used a lot in classic cinema, as it is a classic literary device uh, and style. But it, it, we do notice it a lot in this. And it feels like the idea of almost the doppelganger that the worst version of yourself that follows you around and can't shake. Whereas Guy is this kind of all-American, he's a tennis player, you know, part of the tennis club. He's about to marry the senator's daughter. He's handsome. But yet this other version of him, let's say, is following him around like Frankenstein's pers- uh, monster pursues him. It's that element of it, and so there's this kind of brutal undercurrent of it, and he has to slay him in a way in the end to get rid of that. And is that some kind of representation of like um, the psychological element of that in a physical form? But I think that really doubles down on the gothic horror of it. And I think gothic horror is so powerful for that psychological element that you mentioned, Callum, but also because gothic often comes with a bit of a bizarreness. The kind of supernatural and explained weirdness that comes with it and that's what i found find quite powerful within it yeah and yet like you still want to root for um guy yeah. you know what i mean like that's the like because usually in those scenarios you kind of want to because like you said he's this all-american um sort of personification you know what i mean like tenant like marrying the senator's daughter for crying out loud it's like um but it's almost kind of like, and, you, and yet you still root for him. You still want him to. You still want him to access the truth, and you want him to prevail, despite the fact he's like having an affair, and despite that he's marrying into a family of incredible privilege and wealth. And like, there's even the assumption that his father-in-law has also had similar um, sort of accusations levied against yes, him. You know what I mean? Mentioning passing, isn't it? Yeah. So there's like. It's almost like he's being, he's marrying into sort of like corruption and yet you still want him to win. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a sort of like that. That's what's surreal about it. That's still, that's what's very sort of like Frankenstein-esque about it. Yes. And just on that note of corruption, I don't think this is a huge driving theme in the film, but it's the one that stood out as a wider theme and discussion from it. As I said, yeah. it didn't feel like it was a big platform, but the another little critique of it is that the plot and the story at the end 
wraps up very quickly for a film that's built a lot of tension. How is it solved? The guy at the um, fair identifies uh, and hit him as the wrong man and is like, no, it was Bruno. But then they're like, okay, how do we know this for sure? And then guy mentions the lighter. It turns out he has it. But then the police kind of go, all right, well, you said he'd have the light. He did have the lighter. He must have been coming to plant it here. All right, come into the office in the morning. We'll have a chat and it'll be fine. Which feels really weird. It's such a weird ending. My only... And I don't know how tenuous this is, but my link for that was, is the suggestion and it pulling together what you were mentioning from earlier in the film where the senator is mentioning this idea of having experienced a lot of scandal, you just need to bat it away. And he also mentions how he can get rid of the guy who's tailing him, the police officer who's tailing him if he wants him to. But the guy says, no, that won't look good. That'll be suspicious. Is the suggestion that this all-American guy who's marrying into the family of the senator marrying her daughter is that the police, the plow, the power, the establishment within it are only too keen to find a justification to release him and say, oh, no, it definitely wasn't him because this this can't be him. You know, he's a tennis player marrying into this family. As soon as we find a, a reason, because it seems all too easy and simple at the end for them just to go, oh, of course it wasn't you. We'll come and straighten this out in the morning. Is there an element of that to it, do you think? Um, I mean, I think I, it's, it's certainly not the thing that drives the film. I think it's just kind of a ref, that that's just a reflection of 1950s society. Yeah, I in agree. The, in the sense that, like, um, you know, when the, it's a reflection of when the film was made. Um, a 1950s audience would have rooted for an individual who's trying to, you know, he's, cause it, everything about Guy Haynes' life is all very sort of proper, in inverted commas, isn't it? Mm-hmm. In the sense that, like, you know, he's he's getting married, he wants, um, you know, he's marrying, he's, he's marrying into what is considered to be a, a respectable um, circle, I guess. Um, always reminds me of Matthew Weiner, I said off, off mic, didn't we? Always reminds me of Matthew Weiner, Weiner, however you pronounce it, um, his series Mad Men. Because um, what that series does is like it really gives you an insight into, gives us a really lovely insight into 1950s um, society and culture. I mean, all of those series are based on contemporary sources and the script writing is amazing. But I always, whenever I watch movies from the 1950s, I always use Mad Men as a sort of contemporary reference to sort mm-hmm. of think about how, um, how that how our 1950s society fits together um and i guess what what the story's doing is it's just a a reflection of 1950s respectability really um he couldn't possibly have killed his wife because yeah. he's such a he, he's a celebrated tennis player and he's marrying into a senator's family and he's madly in love and then that acquits him of any guilt um and of course, the thing is as well, he is actually innocent as well. He hasn't really, he hasn't actually committed any crime, has he? He hasn't yeah, actually well, exactly. done anything and wrong. This is why it's a weird kind of moral direction it takes him because he is innocent and is the one you root for. Absolutely. But this is why I just think what's to bring, what's to tease out of that? I think that's more of a comment on the society in terms of, well, obviously he's in it. He doesn't get away with something. It's not him getting away with it. It's more the ease of which he is accepted once they find some a mild bit of evidence. And like I said, the main guy who tails him seems to become very friendly with him. But there's one suspicious 
cop and he just kind of gets well you need you, you need that for balance don't you i mean because yep. it, it balances out the the um the likelihood of guy actually committing a crime because there's yeah. a moment there is a moment in the film where you think oh he could actually yes yeah, kill. yeah he, he, he could kill i mean when he goes to um bruno's father's house because part of the deal is that he bruno kills his ex-wife and then um he goes and kills his father um and he goes and you think he's going to do it just to get bruno off his back mm-hmm. but then he says I need to tell you about your son, and that's a that's a quite a, a turn, a, quite a nice sort of, sort of turning point for the film. But there are moments when you think that will, will guy actually kill to, um, ironically, will he kill to clear his name? Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's moments in the film that it's certainly balanced in that respect. But I mean, running through it, the yeah, this sort of the main spine of it is that like it is a reflection of of 1950s society in some respects. Yeah, I agree. And that element that I put forward there, as you said, I don't think at all that's the full thrust of the film. It's just that slight, those slight references in there of the powerful established family and then how that abrupt ending at the uh, at the end of the film just is a slight allusion to that. This is kind of what came to yeah. mind. Anyhow, Let's wrap this up, Callum. Another mm. good chat, as always. I'll start with my thoughts. We'll go over to you, and then we'll say our goodbyes. But as I said, I think it was a great example of filmmaking. Obviously, it's a classic, push the boundaries of the time, 1951. But I think the absolute win of it was the tension it built throughout, through these classic filmmaking techniques. The score, the camera work, the light, the shadow, the darkness that it evokes, and also bringing in these classic gothic tropes to establish tension and mild horror was very powerful at throwing that at the audience. And what is a through line in these classic films is the script is always so tight. It's great dialogue, great plots, and there's not too much fat on the film. Having said that, as I mentioned earlier, I still think there are a few scenes where it feels overly elaborate within a quite tight film so that just kind of took me away from it a little bit and the bizarreness even though it works to emphasize that fear horror element to it it just at points just seems a little bit too unnecessary for me and that ending as well it does feel like a mild anticlimax. you're like oh this tension has been built to just be very easily released even though i do love that scene it feels very iconic the scene on the carousel um the filmmaking obviously of it but then all the tension that's being built there the guy um the man crawling under it guy fighting on it the little kid who's being thrown about there's a lot that's being built up there which i think is good but having said all that i'm going to give it an eight out of ten i think it was a good film but for those other reasons it doesn't quite get the higher marks from me callum what about you um i mean i i just quite liked how it's filmed aesthetically speaking um like I think the use of shadow and light really creates layers to the film. Mm-hmm. I quite like the fact that it's um, it's the, the the it builds tension throughout. It's an interesting film, and certainly, um, I do th- I agree. I think I do ends it does end quite abruptly. I think like that 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 those fine that final twenty minutes of the film. I think really it builds a lot of tension. It's, oh, what's he gonna do? Is he gonna make it? And you know that 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 is really it. it drives you home 
but then for it suddenly because the camera's cranked up so much with the the the, the ferris not the ferris wheel the merry-go-round just going round and round and round really really quickly mm-hmm. then it crashes and then he dies and it's like oh, i'll speak to you in the morning about this and then it ends and it's like oh he he doesn't like wearing his tennis trousers and then it ends there and it's just like i just feel like it's a little bit too sort of like it's like ah ha ha when actually there's an undercurrent of darkness to it mm-hmm. it would have been quite nice for it to end on a dark note rather than a slightly, slightly positive note i mean someone does die obviously so it's quite dark but like i've it needs to be darker marcus darker <laughs> um yeah eight out of ten for me um i'd i'd yeah, I'd watch it again. It's certainly an interesting film in that respect, aesthetically speaking. Maybe even dip into the novel. Yeah, well, well, Raymond Chandler didn't write the novel. Um, it was written ah, by somebody okay. else. He wrote the score. He wrote the script, which is interesting. Right. Okay. Um, so, I mean, I think, again, probably tells you a lot about sort of like who can access writing in Hollywood in the nineteen fifties. Yes. Yes. Because I think the, the novel was written by a woman. I think. There you go. Uh, Well, great bit of information to end on, Callum, but we are going to wrap it up there. Thank you once again for joining me for another cracking review. As I said, I've been loving going through the classics, bouncing between new releases, modern classics and old classics. The golden age of cinema rides on on the Glacé Film Club podcast. But that's it. Until next time, we're flying into the summer season. Here's already plenty of episodes online ready to stream on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. As you know, check us out on Instagram if you don't already. We love having a chat with people about the films that we've been reviewing at the Glacé Film Disney, Club. Di- that's on Disney Instagram. Plus, Disney Plus and if funded, you could, yeah. give us a nice little review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts because it's all very helpful. But that's it for now. Until next time, keep watching films. As Callum said, he's been nailing through them this summer. If you want a real summary film to watch, Cheaper by the Dozen is probably available online somewhere. If not, there'll be a DVD in a charity shop somewhere. (laughs) There we go. Disney Plus to watch Cheaper by the Dozen. But that was the latest episode of the Glass A Film Club podcast. We'll see you all later.